It's July 21st, 2022, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We are going to skip the usual chit chat for this podcast because once again, we have a guest. Yay. Someone actually decided to to join us. And I think it's going to be a really, really interesting podcast. Very interesting story going on. But our guest today is Mark Schatz from M plus A Architecture Studio in Houston. And I'm going to let Mark introduce himself and Tell us a little bit about the studio. Well, hey there. I'm Mark Schatz, uh, architecture with M plus A in Houston. And we're basically an architecture practice that has morphed into a design build firm over the past, say, 17, 18 years. And we primarily focus on high-end residential. After the uh, financial crisis, we just decided to start keeping the jobs and kind of doing everything. So over the past 10 or 12 years, we've really kind of done a whole range of really nice, super custom, super high-end design-driven homes. Uh, Not not anything that's going to, you know, change the world, but just some really nice work we're really proud of. And uh, that's kind of our our bread and butter, if you will. But that's another way of saying uh, we've we've never quite gotten over being true believers. So we're still kind of stuck in that. A will to power attitude of the you know big eyed student, even though we should all know better. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not sure what quite quite what to say about that, but I think it, it's it's interesting that you are really doing more design build because I think a lot of architects would. Well, no, I know from talking with Matthew, I think we would both be happy if we actually had better control over the final product, but that seriously takes some doing. So, um, well, for you for you guys listening to give you an idea about this podcast to give you a little background. So the Texas Society of Architects had their conference last October or September, anyway, last fall. And it was our first in-person conference, I think, in a few years. And Mark was one of the presenters. And I think probably aside from maybe one or two of the keynotes, probably the best presentation I attended. Uh, Certainly one of the most interesting presentations. And one of the few that I'm guessing nobody got up and left because <laughs> because there was that much you just sort of got really got into it and and what he covered was something that I think most architects are afraid of or we fear perhaps that when we have a project going you know in, anytime you have a project under construction or renovation going you know one of my big things is I'm terrified of water because we've had that experience where we had a um, a sprinkler pipe burst on a, a project and flood for like an hour unattended. You just let, let it go for an hour before they finally got it shut off. So, so for me, it's always been this big thing about, well, water. But Mark did this great presentation about fire. And interestingly enough, it wasn't fire during the project, but fire after the project. And so this is something that happened um, after the project was complete and just it it's this sort of series of events within this one one event that all kind of contributed and came together to to create to create the story essentially and so i'm going to let mark mark talk about that and give us an introduction sort of some background on what really really was happening this is and and you said it's been this is like right around 3 years ago right around 3 years to the day so it's uh, super fresh in my mind thinking about doing this podcast today cuz i'm thinking wow 
it, it it's almost like a calendar moment. Wow, that's that's kind of. <laughs> I guess I guess the fact that we couldn't record earlier this year, this has worked out perfectly. In an odd way, yes. <laughs> well, would you like me to give you the, the the quick sort of backstory of the project, and then uh, you guys can ask me questions about it? Because I have this habit where once I start talking, I'm just going to keep talking. Yeah, I think I think give us sort of the, a little bit of the background and tell us about because because this is a house fire, and tell us about what happened with the fire and. And I will, there's going to be a couple of questions I'm going to have for you after the fact, too, because there are things that I really wanted to ask last last fall and, and just really didn't get to. So, so I'll let you go ahead and talk about the fire and, and what it all meant and how everything kind of went down. All right. Well, here's kind of the, the thumbnail story. So we um, were hired by a client in a neighborhood kind of adjacent River Oaks, which is kind of an upscale uh, inner loop near downtown kind of neighborhood in 2009 to design a really kind of adventurous uh, modern home for them. Uh, the building was uh, designed into 2010. We built it ourselves starting in 2010, completed it in 2011, and they moved in. It was an AIA Houston home tour house, um, just fantastic client, very adventurous. Um, we had the opportunity, kind of like the dream client a lot of architects have. They didn't have, you know, unlimited resources in terms of uh, funds, but they had unlimited resources in terms of their imagination and their engagement. So they, um, well, I could put it this way. The, uh, the husband of the group told me um, that they basically ended up hiring us because they had interviewed like a dozen other architects and they felt that all the other architects, they were going to have to push, but they felt that us they were going to have to hold us back. And so they were kind of looking for that, you know, dialogue about trying to be really adventurous. So the house was a 4,300 square foot, um, really modern, really modern house. We used a lot of a Luca bond on it, folded steel plate, burnished block, a large glass opening onto a backyard that we sculpted in kind of a, a straight, admittedly rip off of a myelin landscape. Really, really well appointed, focus on trim. It, it was really kind of a, just a really wonderful building. And I'll, I'll put it this way to how, how much it was a wonderful building. About five years after it was built, I got a random text from one of the owners just in the middle of the afternoon after not talking to her for a year or two. But she just sent me this text that said, you know, I'm, I'm home early today. I'm sitting in the gallery. I'm watching the shadows on the wall. And just really love the experience of living here. And I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of a big accomplishment. You know, when you get a random compliment from a client five years later. Uh, so it was that kind of project. Lovely people, lovely project. We had the opportunity to have it professionally photographed. They loved to share it. It was a big party house for fundraising and political events known well in the neighborhood. It was really a house that was known well in the architectural community. It's in the, or I should say it was, in the Houston Architectural Guide. But what happened is everything's kind of moving along and the house has been there for about 10 years. Um, it's wearing well, aging well. It looks like it was just built a day ago. And I get this phone call about 9.30 or so from one of my colleagues who tells me that the house is on fire. He had a, a client that he did a house for in the neighborhood and that client had apparently called him and then he called me. 
So I woke up. It had been a long day. I'd like fallen asleep on the couch in my clothes. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. But I drove over and I, was just, I drove up into the neighborhood. Um, the whole sky was just illuminated in this really sickening orange yellow light and the smoke was billowing out um, and sort of covering in this low hanging cloud because the house had foam insulation so once the foam insulation ignited and kept burning um, it was it was really kind of a catastrophically terrible visual almost Hollywood scene of destruction where everything's kind of exaggerated uh, as far as how just ugly being there was so the house uh, it, it suffered a, what I would call a random electrical fire. Uh, it caught fire in the middle of July. The uh, owner had noticed that it was a little warm in one part of the building, uh, went and looked at the thermostat. The thermostat wasn't responding. Uh, he went back to the mechanical room, noticed one of the breakers was tripped for one of the air handlers, uh, reset the breaker. Uh, at least this is a story I know. And uh, the machine just caught fire. And uh, lo and behold, um, there seems to be a very small but consistent record of similar events for this piece of equipment that we had used in this building. So there have been other projects that have had similar types of electrical fires. And um, so the machine caught on fire and started burning in the mechanical room. They called the fire department. And then what ensued after was the real education that I got as an architect. Because, you know, as an architect, you like to think about not just how you put things together, but how things might fall apart and fall apart in a safe way so they don't hurt or harm people. But there was just a series of things that happened involving the design of the building, the materials we used in the building, how the building was laid out, how the building was constructed, how the fire department came to understand or not understand how to have an action plan to address the building because it was not a builder production house. And in my own view, um, they they did a, a good job trying to attack the fire, but they really didn't understand the building and they didn't understand the materials of the building. So I think there were assumptions made that kind of let the fire get out of control because those assumptions led into delays of action and the building basically just was on fire for like two and a half, almost three hours. But um, what was interesting about that is after all of the sort of fireworks and hullabaloo, the fire trucks, and we, because we, it was a two alarm fire, a second crew came in to help put it out. We had a firefighter that had to be evacuated because um, his oxygen tank had run out. It, you know, it, it had all these borderline super scary things happen for a 4,300 square foot, two-story house um, that you might not think, but but it happened. But as the fire department was winding up around 1, 1.30 in the morning and leaving, you, you would look at the building, because I was one of the last people to leave the site uh, with the owner, and um, it, it just looked like nothing had happened. And then we went in the next day, spent the next three days actually over there doing kind of a visual inventory because in our practice, we don't necessarily detail everything in the traditional way. Since we do design build, we actually detail a lot of the stuff on the fly as we're building. So I wanted to get an accurate rep a record of what we had built because the immediate reaction from the owner was, we're going to rebuild it. And not only are we going to rebuild it, it's going to be like it never happened. We're going to put it back in exactly the same way it was. Um, she kind of characterized it like this to me. 
Um, one of her colleagues had told her several weeks after that, when they were going through the whole process of insurance settlements and trying to figure out what to do, rebuild, all that kind of stuff. And her colleague had told her, well, think about it this way. You now have this opportunity to get what you want. And her retort to that was, I already had what I wanted. That is what I just lost. Um, so they were very serious about trying to put it back together. So I was there documenting the cabinet details and the drywall details and how we had done the fry regulate trim and all that kind of stuff that we hadn't had a hard line drawing of. And lo and behold, the fire department started bringing crews through the building and they were basically bringing in other teams to walk through and talk about their experience of fighting this fire the night before because frankly, none of them could believe the building was still standing because it, it burned for hours. And after they extinguished the fire, it was fully standing and fully intact. It's a hybrid construction of burnished block, steel frame and wood frame. So a type five building. But the way that we had put it together, it was pretty robust. And uh, when they originally uh, started the demolition to start the rebuild, which didn't end up happening, the demolition crew also had an unbelievably difficult time taking it apart. But that's one of the things I want to talk about as kind of a lessons learned, um, how we had put the building together in my circumspect view is one of the things that contributed to it being destroyed during the fire because uh, it was built with consideration to hurricane resistance, not consideration to fire resistance. Um, and uh, sort of a little aside about that, I think most firefighters in, in my own sort of slightly cynical view, having had a project burn, uh, they would prefer everything built out of fire retardant cardboard. So the likelihood of it catching on fire is pretty low. And if it did, it's very easy and malleable to deal with. <laughs> they, uh, they didn't really appreciate having to deal with steel, sea pearl and framing and things like that as they were trying to attack the building and put in holes to vent it. Uh, they found it very, very difficult to work around the structural system of the building. Uh, they also found it very difficult to work around the wayfinding building because it wasn't designed like a normal building. It didn't have a predictable uh, typological layout of spaces. And then we had other sort of problematic issues. We used a lot of laminated glass. Uh, the building backed up to one of the major thoroughfares, so it was like 25 feet uh, from San Felipe and Houston, which is a major street that runs over to the Houston Galleria. So it sees just a gigantic amount of traffic every day. So we have road noise to deal with. Uh, we had also used laminated drywall, the sort of green guard, quiet rock type product that has that vinyl inner layer to it. Uh, turns out that's a, that's a super bitch to try to get a fire hook through. So if you're trying to pull down a ceiling to access a cavity space to put out a fire, that quiet rock, it, it does not want to yield. It doesn't want to give in to the fire hook. It doesn't want to pull down. Uh, so we had lots of things Judenich never would have thought about turned out to be problems for the firefighters in terms of materials and systems and layout. But once the building was kind of cleaned up, put out, um, went through and you know salvaged a few things out of it, the owners did decide they were going to rebuild. But at the time... Uh, once insurance got involved in dealing with these issues of um, sort of what I would call escalation and construction costs, the cost to rebuild the building in the manner that we had built it 10 years prior had really, really ramped up. So there was a real disconnect uh, between what the building was originally insured for and what the cost of replacement of the building would be. 
Um, so that, that became an issue of consideration. And while that was something that could be a bridge that could be figured out how to get across, um, the shorter version was it introduced an increased time element on the part of the owner trying to get along with progressing their own life. So all of a sudden we had this sad story of the terrible tragedy of the fire, this super lovely couple who had just really created this work of art here in town, losing that and then having the issue of the disjointedness in their life and the need to have some degree of settlement because they have a they have a, a kid in school and there needed to be continuity for their youngster um, so it wasn't disruptive. So the fire happened at a very inopportune time because there was the focus on you know having stability in in high school and that kind of stuff for their kid. Um, so ultimately um, they ended up not not rebuilding the house. They they bought a house in an adjacent neighborhood, very different style, hired us to help them design and renovate it. And they live there now and they seem to be doing great. Um, they're kind of a resilient, tough, beautiful people. Uh, so they have had to adapt to the, the circumstance, but I'm still quite, uh, quite depressed about it. It was one of my favorite projects. And as all architects, we all know they're there's some projects that you just personally love because you, you love the beauty of the thing and the experience you've created. But then there are projects that have that and they have that extra element of a really satisfied and appreciative client. And in our practice of kind of really trying to focus on design-based architecture that tells the story of each individual person's life, that was a real success. So it's, it, it was a terrible thing not just to lose the building and have the owner lose it, but to to lose that holistic reality of the building was successful not just as a piece of architecture, but it was it was successful as a piece of social practice, family living, all these things that we'd like to aspire to. So it's it's one of those things I think about it every once in a while still, three years on. And frankly, it just depresses the hell out of me. I mean, we've got a bunch of other really nice projects that are in that same kind of category, but I, I feel like I created, this is one of our masterpieces. I know that sounds kind of bold to say that, but it was a, it was a masterpiece. It was a fantastic house and it's just gone. The only plus about that is we were able to salvage some of the custom steel folded catwalk and stair plate elements that we had designed and fabricated for it. It's one of our first uh, ventures into CNC design. And uh, those, those salvage pieces have now been repurposed and designed into a new project that's under construction right now. So we're at least able to give new life to some of the more interesting things uh, from the carcass of the house that we lost. So that, that's kind of the extended nutshell <laughs> Nut story, version, short story, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, I'd be happy to talk about the specifics of products and materials and all of that. But that that's the general backstory of it. Well, yeah, the I think, uh, I, and I tell clients this all the time, I'm, I'm like, this whole process of, of designing this for you and watching it get, get built and having you move into it is almost... For me, it's like giving birth. I mean, this is really a very, as much as it's your house, it's a very personal project for me too, because I'm watching it happen and I'm watching all these things unfold. And and at the end of the day, I'm as invested, as invested, typically as invested in the project as the client. So yeah, to, to lose a house to a fire and know that you can't go back and, and sort of put it back together has got to be 
somewhat devastating. Um, so I can, <laughs> I can see it still being a little depressing. But one of the things that really fascinated me in the presentation was you know, the, the materials alone, what you were talking about with the, the laminated glass and the, the soundproofing for the, for the chip and all the things that the, all the things that firefighters weren't expecting to come to and have to deal with. I think you even mentioned at one point they took the, at the end of the day, the, didn't the fire department come and take all the, the glazing? Yeah, they, they asked um, for it. So the owner was keen on, you know, kind of facilitating the dissemination of information. So when the demolition company was taking the glass panels out, the remaining ones that were intact were all salvaged and saved for the fire department. So they were going to take them to their test facility so they could, you know, hose stream them and smash them and all that kind of stuff just to have kind of a, a working sense of what it's like to work with these larger formats. These were these were large pieces of glass. They were like five by ten. The ones that weren't laminated glass were like extra strength, really, really heavy duty kind of stuff in storefront frames. Yeah, the the first office of First architecture firm I worked for built their own office, and it's next to Love Field here in Dallas. And all of the windows are triple paned, which is great because somebody apparently tried to break into one of the break in through one of the windows at one time and and made it through the first pane of glass and then gave up. So, <laughs> so so kind of handy to have, but I guess in, in a fire when you're not expecting that, that's that's really something to come up against. And I, I can't help but think that, okay, this can't be the first time they've experienced it, but maybe maybe for most fire departments when you're doing residential fires, I guess this isn't the thing that you expect to come across. I think that was one of the, the, the big issues there. Another one that I think is probably more important was the house had a standing seam metal roof. Um, it was a low slope profile, so the roof from the street looked like it had a parapet wall with a flat roof beyond it, but it was actually a low slope application. And so it had the uh, MBCI McElroy kind of, you know, commercial industrial type standing seam system, the white high SRI index finish, so really more like a commercial roof that was over plywood, like five, five eighths plywood decking. And then the subframing was a combination of wood cleats and ledgers and then C purlins. So trying to make the, interior thin. Um, we had originally looked at using conventional wood trusses and I didn't like the deflection that I was seeing on that in terms of just the numbers that the truss guys give you. And so we looked at it and said, you know, well, we could do C Perlin framing right now. It's almost a wash in terms of cost. And you know, we're going to have a dead flat ceiling when we do that. The, the problem with this was when the firefighters were on the roof trying to cut holes to ventilate the building, to evacuate the smoke so that the guys inside could then navigate more clearly because the building became supercharged with smoke. Um, obviously it was a high performance envelope, which means that, you know, it keeps the air out, but it also means it keeps the smoke in. And if you've got foam insulation on fire, it's producing a whole lot of really nasty smoke that all of a sudden you can't get out of the building because the building is so tightly sealed. Um, but when they were trying to cut through the metal roof, um, it just burned up saw after saw. It was just a very difficult exercise that took them a lot of time to do. So there was a time delay associated with it. And then just an incredible difficulty factor. I just don't think they were anticipating having to deal with that. But from my perspective as the architect, you know, 10, 11 years prior, when we were designing and building the building, 
I thought that was a slick damn idea. Like, you know, see Perlin framing and metal deck, just like a commercial building. And this will be great. And the thing about it is going into the building years on, it never developed any significant cracks in drywall. And we had like really involved level five finishes with a lot of articulated forms and shapes and fire glit trims. And it just held up great. So from an architect's perspective, that type of system performed fantastic over the life of the building from a visual perspective, but it made it difficult for the firefighters. Uh, that was an unintended consequence. And, um, I just would not have guessed that 10 years ago. If you would have even asked me, is this difficult for a firefighter? I probably just would have shrugged. But, you know, seeing them do it and having to deal with it, just different. And, you know, in my own mind, that raises questions about the expectations that firefighters have for putting out fires in different building types. And so I, I think to be fair to both me and them, the building was just unique. And when they got there, they had split seconds to make decisions, and we just didn't have anything plain vanilla. Well, Matthew, do you have any questions? Because I, I know you're the, you're the geekier part of, of this duo here, so I thought you might have, because, because the whole material question to me is, is fascinating, but anything that, that's popping out at you? One thing I'd like to add, guys, and maybe I'll anticipate one of Matthew's geeky questions because I've been asked this a lot. Everyone asked me about the foam insulation after the fact. Uh, My immediate reaction after this building burned was I'm never using that stuff again. We are still using it. Um, The fire originated in a true dedicated mechanical room that had the electrical panels, water heaters, the HVAC air handler units, a real room. It had 5-8 rock on the wall closing up to the deck. There was, however, open cell foam insulation that was exposed at the roof deck, and this would have been about 13 feet up or so, 12 or 13 feet up, Uh, but it did have the ignition barrier intumescent coating on it. And so I think the reality of that is the machine that caught fire was able to burn long enough that it defeated the intumescent coating. And once that happened, the foam ignited and it just moved laterally through the building and there was really no way to effectively stop it. Uh, when the guys finally got in to start manage, trying to manage the fire and put out the fire, they then encountered these rooms that had the layered quiet guard um, gypsum and uh, you know they just couldn't get the gypsum down in some areas. In other areas, it, we didn't have that and it was accessible, but those were in like the two-story volumes. And this brings me to kind of this um, thinking about the foam, because I've had sales guys over the years tell me in a very sort of euphemistic way, you know, it doesn't support fire. And I think what they're, they're saying in a euphemistic fashion is if it's not on fire, it doesn't burn. But, but if it's on fire already, you probably have a problem. Yeah. Well, and in listening to you describe this situation, it to me... It speaks more about how, as architects, we have a very, in most projects, we have a fairly limited set of materials that we can use on a day-to-day basis. And like from my own perspective, I love branching out and, and trying something new, doing something different because you know it's it's that's the projects that really stand out in your mind, and 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 obviously it did in this project, but those same materials also become the 
well, you have such a high performing building with all of your, your, your really solid materials that it's Larry, help me out here. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, you have, well, so you have high performance materials and you have materials that we don't, you don't commonly use. So, so, and, and I'm one of my old business partners and actually the first architect I worked under always told me there's always new things to learn. There's always new products. And she loved, loved uh, doing research on things. And so when you have the opportunity to use something different, to try something new, it's always fun to do that. But in this case, it's almost the catalyst in some ways for, for what happened, I think, you know, unintentionally. And to, to, to add in a little bit on that, guys, um, I, I think I missed something I probably should have said. So having, having a dedicated mechanical room uh, and the house not having an attic, the mechanical room was actually a door on the second floor. But the, the building was laid out kind of uniquely. It had a series of two-story gallery spaces, living spaces that were very large. The owner had some ambitions for art collecting. So the, heart, the house was set up for that. Um, so the, the access to the mechanical room was kind of around a corner down a hall. The firefighters didn't find the room in time, didn't understand it was a room. Uh, we also had an access door onto the roof to service the ACC units that were sitting immediately adjacent the room. They didn't realize there was a door there. Uh, and when they did, they got a little defensive about it. In in my opinion, they made the observation in one of their little films that we had a door to the mechanical room from the outside with no way to access it, which the reality of it is there was a door from the inside that went to the outside. So that, that, made, it, that made it difficult. The wayfinding and the unique layout and design of the building, they didn't know how to navigate it. And when the building got supercharged with smoke because it wasn't ventilating and they weren't able to cut holes in the roof fast enough, so they all they had all of this you know, super dense zero visibility kind of situation. Uh, the stair that led to the second floor was in the center of a gallery space. So one of the firefighters told me if they were trying to find the stair by feeling along the wall, they never found the stair. Um, so there, there are these kinds of anecdotal things that may be true for one person, not true for another person, but it underscores the idea that the unique design of the building made it hard for them to figure out what the hell to do and where to go. That, that was problematic. And then you add in the material aspect and it's just a double whammy. Yeah, no. Well, and, and, and so I think, I think that helped crystallize my point a little bit. So I, I think in my, at least in my mind, I. I would personally hate to see uh, any project of mine, especially one that I was particularly proud of catching on fire and burning down to the ground and then not being able to to rebuild in the manner that we wanted to, as you're, you're describing. But it also, to me, it seems like it's also a bit of a tragedy that we don't have more high performance building envelopes that firefighters can't get used aren't used to that type of building technology because to me like especially in Texas like we're dealing with record levels of heat and and most normal buildings are just not built to the description that that you have the, to to the ty- to the to the standards that you're describing for us today and to me, it's just sad to hear that, you know, somebody who's actually trying to do that and, and you know, there, there, there's, there's, two, there, there's the two competing forces here, which is, oh, we want to b- keep building the typical standard stuff. But at the same time, like you're trying to do something better. You're trying to build a better product. 
and then and but then it getting but then it getting kind of thrown back in your face you know you know what i'm saying yeah, but, but to to sort of elaborate on that uh, that was the whole goal in the, the original design discussion and i'll put it to you this way the building being kind of a hybrid steel frame type 5 building it had the ambitions of being able to withstand a category 5 hurricane and I have no doubt in my own mind, being sort of prideful about it, that it absolutely would have been the building standing in the neighborhood while everything else might have been wiped out if we had that kind of event. But the irony here is what made the building really strong and resilient for windborne, floodborne, hurricane type events were its Achilles heel when it came to the issue of fire. So everything that made it strong for resisting hurricanes made it too strong to effectively allow the firefighters to fight it in a conventional way. And I, you know, if you look at like the YouTube video, because the Houston Fire Department did a fantastic case study video that I actually presented at the TXA, where you're on the roof with them, you're looking through their body cams, you're you're hearing them talk about all these things that I'm talking about from their perspective. But what you kind of realize in listening to them talk and how they act through the situation is you, you, see, you see that unintentional duality of what is good for what's one circumstance is bad for another. Like if we didn't have steel framing in that building, they may have been able to just chop it open, punch a hole, vent it, put the fire out. Uh, but because of the materials and how it was built, it took them too long to get through those materials and those assemblies to be able to fight it in a conventional way. And that lag in time accelerated the destruction of the building. So there, there's a real profound irony there. And that is one of the uh, lessons learned that I presented at the Convention is, you know, I, I had thought about it kind of one-dimensionally while we were designing it, being very pleased with myself for building this really strong hurricane-resistant house, not realizing that I had unintentionally designed a house that was going to be difficult if it caught fire. It never occurred to me that there might be an inverse relationship between those two things. And that probably isn't true for all cases, but that was certainly true for this case. Yeah, and I, I don't think architects ever, when we're designing, we ever really think about that sort of, I mean, like you said, if you're down in Houston or if you're in Florida, you're thinking hurricane. I don't think most of us think about fire, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, you just mentioned that, or mentioned a, little, a couple of minutes ago that you're still using foam insulation. So, you know, the in my head is is, this has happened, you've experienced it. What has changed for you about how you approach has it changed anything about the way you approach design, the way you approach the construction? Yeah, a couple of things have changed there. Um, my first reaction the first year was we were going to switch everything over to mineral wool and, you know, client be damned. That's just what we're going to do. Um, but I had such pushback in, in a quiet, but kind of focused way for many clients. Uh, Cause the first thing we did was contact all of our current clients, um, and, and, and tell them, you know, we just had a project burned down. Need to let you know that uh, this is kind of the circumstance behind it. I didn't want you to hear it, you know, as a rumor to grapevine. This was something that was very particular to this house. Um, so all the people that had built buildings kind of appreciated it. All the ones that had that particular piece of HVAC equipment that was put in at about the same time kind of scratched their head and maybe got a little worried. Um, but, you know, from the 
people that were building in the middle of the building process, they kind of looked at it and said in an objective way, you know, statistically, the odds of this happening are so infinitesimal, you have to allow that this is a one-off freak occurrence. And so maybe the negative experience of what happened in your one particular case shouldn't impact my project. I shouldn't anticipate that happening to me. And, you know, the reality of the the numbers, the statistical model is that's that's probably true, but it, it's a hard thing to swallow because it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, is there such a thing as too safe? And after you've had a catastrophic event, that how you frame and answer that question is different. You're just coming at it from a different perspective. So in our current design methodology that we've kind of modified over the past couple of years, um, you know, we're, we're trying to fire encapsulate everything. And I still get pushback from owners because I'll get the case where we might have a mechanical room or a mechanical attic where we're doing high performance buildings. All the equipment is in condition space. And I'll tell them, you know, we need to go in and just, you know, do five eighths rock and take this room. And it's an extra five to seven grand. And they will just say, we're not going to do it. Um, you know, because if you're if you're in a situation where the code's not going to mandate that to happen, and they have the option for that to be an add-on cost, it's hard for a lot of owners to look at that and say that is an added value and an added benefit. What I find curious about that is that is the same kind of argument that we use when we're pitching systems for the building. Like you know, let's do a void box, structurally isolated slab. It's going to cost more. You're going to spend a lot of money that you're never going to see. It's not like buying a big fancy fireplace surround or something, but you're going to have peace of mind. Uh, clients will typically buy it when you're talking about structure, but when you're talking about what's chipboard and do fire dampers on residential equipment, I've yet to have anybody take me up on it except for the people that had the house burn when we did the redesigned set of drawings. We went back and we fully encapsulated that room. We fire dampered all the equipment. We did emergency overflow drains uh, with a domestic sprinkler system. The house did not have a domestic sprinkler system. I'm not sure that would have really helped. Maybe it would have, um, but it kind of modified our approach and I'm, I'm trying to push these these additional cost items and current things we're designing and building, but it's, it's ironically a hard sell. And I will show clients the photos of this beautiful house, the befores and afters and say, you know, if, if we had had a fire damper on this piece of equipment, if we had had two layers of rock on the ceiling, if we had had a domestic sprinkler system, if we, if we had had all these things that are not required, those things in my mind would have introduced a passive component that would have overcome the issue of what I characterize as the fire department. And it sounds like I'm being unfair to the fire department, but you know, the reality is I, I was there. I, you know, I saw how it went down. I watched the building burn. I have nothing but respect for those guys, but the reality is the building was just too damn unique. Everything about it was unique and they didn't assess it fully right out of the gate and a fire moves very quickly. And if you misstep in how you initially assess it, you know, you're almost at a lost cause. So in, in all the current designs, we try to do these things that add time delay, uh, thinking that if you're going to have another catastrophic event, it's pretty, pretty reasonable to expect it's going to come out of the mechanical room or it's going to come out of the kitchen. Well, the, the, and you got, you got some pushback on social media too, didn't you? 
We, we, we did. We, there was a whole bunch of pushback from obviously firefighters. Cause you know, there's all little groups and whatnot on Facebook and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. And it was over and over again, like, oh my God, that house is a death trap. And then over and over again, these stupid modern homes, these modern homes are terrible. And, and you know, just really sort of smacking it down. And, you know, from my view, it's kind of like an attic space is an attic space. The fire moved laterally through the assembly, just like it would have in a conventional house. The fact that the building had steel framing components and these other kind of unique materials was really the issue. I think my favorite comment, though, is someone was kind of being snarky, but I took it as a real compliment. They said, this looks like a house John Wick would live in. And I thought, that's exactly right. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's every architect's dream. Well, Matthew, do you have any other questions? I Well, so I this is more on a personal note than maybe necessarily a podcast, but like I, I, I personally loved how you described a a good architect client relationship at the beginning because I don't feel like we hear that enough because in architecture, you know, it's so I, I do dog training on the side as part of as one of my hobbies and, and this is this tangent is related, I promise. <laughs> but the there's a there's a, a saying in, in the dog world that's Oh, great dog! Shame about the handler. You know, so with 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 the idea being that you know the dog is super smart and knows what they're doing, but you know the handler's the one screwing it up. And it so it takes two people to or it takes two entities to to really create something special. And I feel like a lot of people don't get to hear enough of that because architecture very much is it's a it's a team sport you know you've got you got to have everybody on board going in the right direction to have the kind of outcome that you're describing this building having for for as long as it was standing oh oh yeah matthew and i you know i think i I think it's really great that you're picking up on that because this was fantastic client fantastic project everything about it was positive doesn't always go that way the other way i will laughingly say is I can think of one or two projects that if they burned down, I would secretly be happy because I, you know, wasn't really a great owner experience, but that made this one even worse because it's one of our, you know, not just premier projects, but one of the, one of the experiences of being a practitioner that I look back, cause I've been, I've been doing this a while now and I look back and I think, you know, I can probably think of 15, 20 couples or people that we've worked with that just I'm so happy I have them in my life and these people were really in that group and so to have something so tragic like that happen to them it just seems like the uh, the unfairness of the world so for me it made it even worse but I'm, I'm going down that road I shouldn't but there you go I'll, I'll stop on that <laughs> yeah and and are you I mean are you still I mean because a lot of times we're doing work for friends or people we know or are you still friends with with these clients because like i said these these relationships are are a big part of why especially i went into the residential side of things because you know you you can have such great relationships on on such a personal level oh yeah i mean um these folks in my mind are always going to hold that kind of position of being special in my heart and the the first project we did for them was great 
uh, second project was okay. I, to be frank, I think we could have done a better job for them on the second job that we did, trying to help them transition. Uh, but that's also right in the middle of COVID. So it's a, it, it's been kind of difficult, but uh, yeah, I, I, I would say we're, we're probably okay at the end of the day. But then the, the thing I, I worry is, you know, I'd like to be able to call these folks up three to five years from now, exchanging Christmas cards or however sort of you want to, you know, euphoristically characterize it. But I, I, I wonder, and I have this personal concern, if, if such the severity of the loss and the, the sort of trauma of the experience in some respect over time is going to dissociate our relationship. I worry about that. Uh, not that I, you know, need to have, cause it's not like we talk or anything, but it, you know, it's just, you, you kind of want to keep everything on the positive. And I, I think there's a lot of unintended consequences that happen with traumatic events like this. Um, it's, you know, almost like a family history story where it could go either way. Almost like you're reading a, a Faulkner novel or something. I could see that. I mean, that's, that is, you know, you, you want to have that ongoing, ongoing relationship with, with past clients. I, I mean, if nothing else, that, that means that down the road, they're coming back to you and saying, can you help me again? And I, I think every architect wants to have that, that kind of experience, but unfortunately for you, uh, not quite, well, you know, house burning down, I think probably <laughs> might take some of the zip out of it, but, um, you know, I really, we, we, we've, we tried to do this podcast earlier and I'm glad we had an opportunity to finally do it and talk with you. Uh, are you doing this presentation anywhere else? Um, I missed getting it in for TSA this year. I've been so busy. I missed the deadline and I, I, I kind of poked and said, Hey, Hey, what if, and they're like, no, sorry. So I, I, I may present it, uh, the year after. And um, the, the reason I, I think I will continue to kind of offer it as an opportunity in the upcoming conventions is I've been doing presentations on design build and other topics for about five years. But the presentation on this was the, the room was full and I probably had 20 people come up and want to talk to me about it either right after at the stage or just randomly in the convention center hall later. And, and people really wanted to talk about it. Uh, they wanted to talk about what happened. They wanted to talk about how I reacted to it. It, it seemed to really touch a nerve, uh, both personally, emotionally, and from the technical side as well. So I, I think I'm going to keep it out there for a couple of years, even though every time I present it or think about it, it makes me really sad. Like you go get a cheap bottle of Canadian mist whiskey and you drink the whole thing because you know you're not buying it for the taste you're just sad you're just sad <laughs> that's awesome uh well not maybe not necessarily awesome but you know what i mean uh yeah no I, I think this is one of those presentations that that should be done at ai national i think many architects probably need to hear it just because it presents such a such an unexpected picture of, of what what buildings can or can't do so yeah, so hopefully you'll you'll get an opportunity to keep, to keep putting this out there because I, I think we don't think of as architects we don't think about those things because we perhaps don't want to but but I think it's important. If someone wanted to get a hold of you, what's what's the best way to get in touch with you guys? Um, just shoot me an email or pick up the phone. Um, that's that's the best way. So you can check out our website. Our contact information is there. We're MA Architecture Studio or M plus A Um, 
however that runs together, you can find it on the web. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to share anything and answer questions about it. And because when this happened to me and I started thinking about it and I realized my own path of discovery about the issues that I was, once I started, I got over being emotional about it and started to be a little objective about it and realized the pros and cons of what had happened uh, in terms of what we had selected and decisions we had made in design and materials and how the firefighters had reacted to sure, trying to service the building. I thought it was absolutely essential to share that because I'm not to talk myself up, but I, I like to really think that we are thorough in thinking about our buildings and this caught me by surprise. And so I think that, you know, if I missed it, there's got to be thousands of architects out there that are probably just like me that are trying to do something really great and being really conscientious about doing advanced systems and, you know, really beefy high performance buildings. And you don't realize you may be building in things that have some latency to them that might kill you in another situation you hadn't thought about. So I'm, I'm going to keep it out there for a while and hopefully help somebody else not have my problem. That's excellent. And hopefully people are going to catch the podcast and, and can learn a little bit about it too. So guys, we're going we're gonna to wrap up. As usual, if you want to contact me, you know you can find me at Spotted Dog Arch on Instagram and Twitter or just Larry at SpottedDogArchitecture.com. And you can always find uh, the podcast on Instagram at Arch Geeks Podcast and on the interwebs at ArchitectureGeeks.com. Well, Mark, thank you for being part of this. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. And guys, we'll talk to you later. Bye.